What's up, ladies and gentlemen? Joe Bonamassa here with another exciting episode of Live from Nerdville. Please enjoy my one-hour conversation with the legendary drummer Carmine Apice, who is, you know him from Vanilla Fudge, Blue Murder, Cactus, Beck Boger and Apice, Rod Stewart. We talked a lot about his days with Rod Stewart. So he's a gentleman, a scholar, and a living legend. Please enjoy our conversation. Thank you. Hey, how are you doing? I'm good. Well, aside from having COVID, I'm good. <laughs> oh, you had, you had COVID? Yeah, I just got it like a day ago. Oh, wow. Know? Wow. So, how you feeling? I, I feel all right. It feels like a cough. Right. Know? Right. So I'm going to, I got my thing near the mute button here. So if I'm coughing, I'm going right. to mute myself. So I don't. You've had that you know. in radio for years. But uh, sorry, sorry you're going through that. I, I, I know a lot of people <laughs> that, that, that have it. My my manager had it. Yeah, and, um, my wife has it too. Yeah, and Leslie, she's got it too. But uh, luckily, it's not too severe. I'm, I'm, no, it's that uh, it's the one that doesn't kill you. That just is very, very infectious to everybody. You know. Right. Right. That's good. So how, other than the COVID, how have you been? I've been good. Been busy. You see, I'm in my studio on the house. I got my drums behind me with my old cactus bass drums and right. uh, they sound really great and i got all the gold and platinum records in here because my wife will let me put them in the house she says it's we don't want to like a memorabilia uh wall in the house put them all in here so i got right. everything in right. here i got all the awards in here it's it's it's, it's lucky are the few to have that many gold and exactly I, I know today i mean who gets gold and platinum records at all it's uh, where did Warren Haynes? He, Warren Haynes has the best uh, best way to describe the record business in 2022. Well, he said this to me a couple of years ago. So he goes, he goes, everything about the record business now just drop the zero. If you yes. used to sell, if you used to sell three hundred thousand, you'd be happy with thirty thousand. If, if you used to spend three hundred thousand on a record, be happy with thirty thousand. I, I go, yeah. you know what? I would, I would even go less than that. Drop two zeros. Yeah, you know. I mean, criminally, I don't have. A, I mean, I don't even have a uh, CD player in my house. You know, no, no. I, don't have, I don't even have one in my car. That the the the, the, uh, the new car. Well, I, I know that's the new bit with the car. No, nobody has it. We just got a record player, actually. Right. And uh, you know, record players. Do you have a record player now? A new one? Yeah. yeah. Does it have a belt outside? I think no. I have an old. Uh, techniques one for yeah if you have an old one they don't but now all the new ones they have a belt that goes around the big spindle and the little spindle and right. to get a different speed you got to go up or down oh wow you know, it's it's terrible so we we use ours a little bit you know when i like uh, i released my guitars his box set i played it on there to see what it sounded like and right. and it was like in december Right. And, you know, over the months we played, you know, an R&B song or something, you know. Then the other day I went to you know, play some and the belt is laying on the on the on the flat top of the turntable. And I said, what's going on here? So I tried to put it on. It kept falling off. Oh, my God. Called the company. They sent me like four different belts. And we finally got one to stay on there. So right. I went online looking for other turntables. Even like four hundred dollar, five hundred dollar turntables. Yeah, they all have these belts. Yeah, you know? 
terrible. It's uh, you know, it, one of the things when you play vinyl that I I noticed is that all of my favorite records that I grew up listening to, idolizing, yeah. are shorter than you think. I know. I They're, saw the thing you did with uh, with uh, David Coverdale. You're talking about, you know, we make these CDs now, uh, or you know, not even CDs for right. twelve songs. Back right. in the old days, like me with Vanilla Fudge, Cactus, and BBA, and all those all those records, 17, 20 minutes, maybe the most. Right. On right. one it, side, we did the break song with Vanilla Fudge. It was twenty three minutes, but they had to lower the the volume of it because it was so long, you know. Right. But uh, you know, now we release like we did this newest Cactus record. And they had to put it on two two LPs, right? You know, and I remember, you know, uh, David and you talking about that, and I said, "That's right," you know. Yeah, it used to be seven or eight songs. Yeah, you're good. You know, now it's like, and I always tell, you know, like when we make these records, and even my own records, or if I produce a record for someone, it's like, it's like let's just concentrate on ten killer tracks. We don't, yeah. you don't have to put thirteen on anymore. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's not like it. Like Even that. ten might be too long for one record, you know. People's attention spans unless, are short. unless they're short. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, like, how would you, you know, when you guys would record like with Vanilla Fudge and stuff like that? Obviously, the, you know, I, I believe they were Atco Records, Atlanta. Yeah, yeah. And um, I mean, was were, were they like, okay, you guys can do a twenty-three minute song, but you got to deliver me a two-minute single as well? Well, we. Back in the day, it wasn't so single oriented, mm -hmm. you know, like you keep hanging on was released in July of 67 and it went up to about 70 on the charts. Right. And then, you know, that was it. That started our career in August or beginning of September. We released the whole album. Right. And the album was on Billboard. It hit the Billboard charts at 200. Right. And then the next jump was to 33. Wow. Yeah. And then. 15 and then we ended up having the first album that ever hit the top 10 without a smash single right and then we were on the ed sullivan show uh february 68 which was six months later right and we still didn't have a hit single right we had a hit album right so we were the first band to be on the ed sullivan show without a hit single so you know they cut it down when we when we um started, you know, talking to them about the single initially. They said, well, we got to edit it. So they did the edit. Right. And when we heard it, we went, oh, my God, it's awful. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, you don't really have a lot of say back in those days, you know? Yeah. And, 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 it's, and it's, it's weird because, like, when, when you first, like, when I first heard it, I probably first heard the radio edit. You know, yes. and then when I, but then when I heard the long form, I was like, "What's the?" I mean, it's it's what you get used to. You know, yeah. I mean, like, yeah. you know, the happy. I, I remember when I first met you. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you remember that you were young. Uh -huh. It was the Leo Fender. That's right. Tribute in L.A. somewhere, yeah, Irvine Long Beach Arena, Irvine. Yeah. That's right. It was in Irvine. And and you were like you were a kid, you know, like maybe twelve years old. Yep. yep. I remember it was it was a, a very it was 1991. It was very it was a very eclectic group of yeah. 
musicians. Everyone from yes. Steve Lukather. I sat in with Robin Ford. You guys were there. Yngwie yep. Melmstein was there. Yeah, I was going to say Yngwie was there. It was, you know? it was, and, uh, but you left an impression on everybody. <laughs> I'll tell you what. I was just... I was just thrilled. I mean, it was like it was like one of my first times in LA, you know. Yeah. And now that I live in LA, I'm like I'm like Irvine is not really LA. <laughs> you know, no, it's, it's it's way out of LA. Way out. It's yeah. like it's like when people come from you know that like the Nam show is uh, this weekend, and and um, I've been pinged by so many people going, "Hey, I'm in LA for the Nam show." I'm like I'm like, are you in Anaheim or are you in LA? Yeah. And they're like, no, we're we're staying down in Anaheim. Just to, just come hang out. I go. You realize that could be a three hour drive. Yeah. You know, down the five. You, with you the know. traffic. With the traffic. Yeah. You know, everybody's calling me. They're saying you going to the Nam show. I said, first of all, a Nam show in the summertime. Yeah. No, I'm not going. And a lot of yeah. my companies are not going. You know, T Drumming going, Vic Fur's yeah. not going. Uh, and then we're playing. You know. Right. When's, uh, when's the tour kick back up? Well, we're doing, uh, I'm doing a speaking gig in uh, New York at New York City uh, Storytelling conf Conference or something. Right. That's on the 10th. Oh, wow. Okay. And then on the 11th, I leave in the morning. I go to Cincinnati. I join all the Cactus guys. And we right. do, uh, you know, I don't do like these long tours like you probably do because you're way younger than me. Right. But uh, I'm happy to go out a week or two at a time. Right. And then come back, you know, yeah. so we're going to be out 11 days. That's a good pace. You know? And then we come back on the, on, I leave on the 10th. I come back on the 19th, so it's nine days. Yeah. You know, that's good. You know, um, one of the things uh, I wanted to ask you about, and I, I think on so many levels that you're, 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 you're drumming and, and, and just everything about what you've done over your career has been so forward thinking. One of the things that I, I always noticed was before social media before any of any of the stuff we did we have now to promote ourselves and and you had a brand within a brand because you had i um it was you and i noticed that and cozy powell probably got it from you had your name on the two bass drums yeah and i really always thought that was so cool because it's like well who's that on drums carmine a piece yeah you know and you know and I, I and and it was like because it was like like a very cool form of branding you branded yourself as a as, well as a I, I did it i did it because my idols right gene krupa right they always had the gk or buddy rich you know, yeah VR. right but i took it one step further because when i was ludwig at the time they would give me my bass drum heads right and they said you know why don't we put your name on the bass drum heads i said okay and at the time when, I, you know, the first time I really did it was with um, Rod Stewart. You yeah. know, and that's, that was my biggest uh, audiences I played to, like, all the time. Right. You know, six nights at the forum, five nights at the garden, you know, uh, just, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 people. So I figured, oh, that's great. So if I had my name on the drums, you know, even when you look at Do You Think I'm Sexy, the video, like right. 120 million views now. Right. And I'm playing and Rod singing in the middle. There's Carmine a piece on each side of him, you know? It's it's great. How is it how is it working with um uh Tom Dowd? When Tom was great. But I, I tell you the truth, with dealing I'm sexy, it was kind of weird because when we did it, 
we wanted it to be like the Rolling Stones missing you. Right. Okay. I when, hear that. when when we recorded it, we had two or three guitars and Dwayne Hishney, my, my buddy, played keyboard, who helped write the songs with me. And and we had Paulino da Costa playing some percussion. Mm-hmm. But it sounded big. We had the freaking big drum sound, Andy John's engineering it. Right. Big drum sound, big guitars and everything. And then Tom took it, and we were on 124 track. Right. And Tom took it. Next, we're on 224 tracks, and he put the whole orchestra in there doing that. And uh, Jim Cregan's ex wife, Linda Lewis, was singing a high part, like two octaves up of that line. And he had so much stuff on it. Tom Scott now is playing the solo, Mm -hmm. and he brought in David Foster when he was a session guy. Right. Play keyboard along with Dwayne. And so the band, Rod and the band went like, what's going on here? Like, what happened? All of a sudden, this big thing shrunk down to this thing. Right. And he said, trust me. So we didn't say much. Right. We trusted him. Right. Hey, I went to number one in like 13 countries, you know? Yeah. So I guess he was right. Did you? And you know what else is funny is we did another version of it. Which mm-hmm. was a uh, different chords, different structure. Mm-hmm. And Rod, after we recorded it, Rod said, no, "I don't like that version. Let's work on it more." So I took that version. I was producing a Japanese singer, mm-hmm. a female singer, and I put Willie Weeks on the track, Earl Slick, me, and Dwayne Hitchings, mm-hmm. and and we wrote a whole a whole complete song different. Right. Then wow. the I'm sexy called "I Just Fell in Love Again." My right. friend Jim Diamond, an English, great English uh, Scottish singer, he wrote the lyrics for her, you know, and she's right. a Japanese singer. So he wrote the lyrics and taught her how to sing it. And right. it did really, really great in Japan. Wow. You know? And it was the same chord structure as what Rod didn't want. It was a little more rock, you know. Right. It's the, the song is the gift that keeps on giving, you know. Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. Yeah. You know? I mean, it's it. You know, I mean, when songs take on a life of their own, I mean, you've had that happen yeah. several times. I mean, Young yeah. Turks was another one. Yeah. Um, but, you know, when it's when it's happening, can you, are, are you just sitting back on, can you believe this song that we wrote is like number I know. one? I mean, it's, I can't believe it now. You know, I right. I did a, a heavy version of it for, for my Guitar record with me and Pat Travis, right. with me singing it in slow down version, heavy guitars. You know, there's so many different versions of it. Uh, it was actually, you know, I thought, I mean, you think about the thing, I'm sexy. What, what would you think would be a good commercial on TV? What, what product? Right. You know, like um, a Cadillac or, you know, a car or, you know, some clothes for chick. You know, the only one we ever had. Which one? Was Chips Ahoy cookies. Really? Yeah. That's, that's the only one we ever had. I was going to say maybe shampoo or... Shampoo, or, or anything that's sexy, you know? Yeah. You know, a bra commercial. You know? Right. Wow. Lingerie, you know, just... But Chips Ahoy cookies, I mean, I love them, but you know, it surprised the hell out of me, you know? Talk, talk to me a little bit about, um, you know, like Buddy Rich, Gene Krupa, the double bass. Yeah. You know, because, you know, you were one of the first in rock and roll to kind of take that that heavy jazz stuff and and rock drumming and put it all together. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was, I always wanted double bass before I made it with Vanilla Fudge. But actually, you know, 
I, I grew up in Brooklyn, you know, we, we were out there surviving, playing gigs and all that. But I always sang. So I always had the mic right next to me singing. Right. So if I had a double bass drum, I couldn't fit the mic there. And I'd have to buy a boom mic. I couldn't afford the bass drum and the boom mic. Right. So, so I never did the double bass, even though I listened a lot to Louis Belson. He was mm -hmm. another one. And then when we made it with Vanilla Fudge, I got the big bass drum, a 26 bass drum, because there were no PAs back then. Mm -hmm. Right. Everybody's getting starting these Marshall amps, and Tim Bogan had like dual showmen. I see you have a couple of them back there. Yeah. He, he had two bottom, two dual showman bottoms. And we used to put a Shure mic inside my bass drum and run it into his amplifier. Right. And that was the only kind of amplifier we had. There was no PA systems. Right. So, you know, I was in a pawn shop one day in upstate New York playing a gig. That's P-A-W-N, mm -hmm. right? Right. And, and, uh, and I saw this Leedy Ludwig 26 by 15 bass drum. And I said, how much is that? And he said, five bucks. I said, take it. So I got it for five dollars. Right. And in Downbeat Magazine, you used to be able to get the, the coverings for the drums, you know. So my, right. my drums were Red Sparkle, so I got a Red Sparkle one. I did that. And then I got this Vanilla Fudge painted bass drum, Vanilla Fudge, and we put it on a slant. Mm -hmm. And I had this huge bass drum that was loud as hell, you right. know. And, you know, I had that for a while. And then when we started happening, Ludwig approached me to do an endorsement deal. And I said, what, what kind of drums you want? I thought, well, if the bass drum is louder, let me get everything bigger. Right. You know, because everybody was using 22 and bass drum. The only one that had a big kind of bass drum was Dino Denali from the Rascals. You right. know, and he also taught me to put newspaper in the bass drums instead of padding it up, you know. Right. Because it, it takes away the overtones you don't want, but it still sounds like a bass drum. Right. You know, so... So I said, I want maple. They said, we, we're offering this brand new finish. It's, it's maple. This would be the first maple kit. And I said, okay, so what kind of sizes you want? So I said, well, how about a small tom, like a marching tenor drum, which is 12 by 15, you know? I've had the two bass drums. Let's order 26-inch bass drums, marching tenor drum in the middle, a 16 by 18 floor, and I had a 22 bass drum on its side with metal rims as a big tom. Right. And then I had a six and a half inch concert snare drum. And everybody was using three or five, but this is six and a half. And then I said, uh, I got endorsed by Pasty Cymbals also. Mm -hmm. And I saw that in the catalog, they had gongs. I said, what right. about a gong? Because I, I had a little gong because with Vanilla Fudge, we were very orchestrated and symphonic. I had some chimes and, had a little gong and, you know, stuff like that. Right. I said, can you get me a, a gong? They said, yes, I got a 38-inch gong. Before they had that big stand, you know, right. I had it on the floor. Right. And so it was all cool. So when I got the kit, I said, oh, my God, that is unbelievable, you know. Matter of fact, that little tom in the front, they thought it was supposed to be a floor tom, so they put leg holders on it, <laughs> even though I had it in the middle on a snare stand. Right. You know, and uh, it sounded great. It sounded amazing. And uh, and that's what I used from June of 68 onward, you know. And that's when Led Zeppelin opened up for us in, in that year in right. December. And uh, when John Bonham saw that kid, he was flipped out. 
Right. He said, I would love to get a kit like that. Can you help me get an endorsement from Ludwig? That was like Ludwig's main guy it was me, Mitch Mitchell, and Ginger Baker, and right. Ringo, and Dino. You know, right. me and Dino were the only Americans, you know. Right. And, uh, and Dino you know, played, but he didn't do anything. They, they kept wanting me to do clinics, mm-hmm. you know. I said, nah, I'm too much of a pop star. I don't want to do clinics. Right. And then I called Ludwig and I said, look, there's this new band. They call Led Zeppelin. This drummer's really good. I think, I think they're going to be big. So he wants a deal. And I keep saying that that's like an understatement of five decades. <laughs> right. Six decades now, you know. And uh, so eventually they gave him the same kit as mine. Right. Six months later, they got big. Mm-hmm. Not as big as they were, but they got big. They were equal to Vanilla Fudge now. And we went out on tour together. And he had the same kid, double bass drums. Right. You know? Wow. And if, and if you're sitting in the audience, and we alternate um, headlining. So one day we would headline, next day they would headline. So you're sitting in the audience, you see this blonde kid on stage. And they take it off. Mm-hmm. And they put the same kid up again. Right. <laughs> the audience is probably going... I remember Randy Castillo, who played with uh, Ozzy, I mentioned that to him. He said, yeah, I was wondering what was going on there. Right. He said, you guys took the your kid off and then another kid, the same kid went on. Yeah. So, Because I always wondered what the audience thought, you know? Right. Well, you know, um, how important, you know, because a, a lot of people think, you you know, you walk up to a drum kit and it just goes boom, 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 crash, boom, bang. The way you tune the drums was very unique. You you have very specific tuning, and when I would hear you play, it's it's you know it, it's every instrument is tactile. But when I hear you play, it was like it was immediately identifiable because you had a very you had a very signature way of tuning your bass drums and your toms and your snare, and and it's it sounds like you. You know, I mean, like for drummers out there, I'm like like. I th- I think the tuning is a lost art now because it, yeah. it it does create that sound. It is it is a lost art. I've always tuned, believe it or not, so the toms would hit in the mood. One, mm-hmm. three, five, do 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 do. You know, depending right. on where I started, I, I would start with the big tom. You know, right. that would be the root, the one note, and then the second tom, and the third tom. If I had a fourth tom, I would go down below the root. Right. The bass drums, I don't know. I just I never really had a secret to it. I just would hit it and go, I don't know. It doesn't feel right. Let me tighten that a little bit. Right. You know? do, you, do you like them? Do you like, the, do, do you like the action tight where the stick bounces off? I have it in the middle. In the like middle. Medium. You know? In the old days, they had the speaking pedals. And they were really fast. That's how like Bonzo did the triplet in Good Times, right. Bad Time. Right. It was on a Speed King pedal. Um, but what happened when you played a 26 bass drum, the, the pedal didn't hit in the middle. Right. You no. Know? So eventually I, I went down to what I have here. Mm-hmm. I have 24 inch bass drums by right. 15. They were right. always 14. Mm-hmm. So Ludwig would say to me, why don't you make it 16 inches easier for us to make? I said, I don't know. I just thought, you know, if I'm losing an inch here on the 26 or two inches, I'll just add an inch of wood. Right. Now it's just guessing it's going to sound good. Right. You know? And then from that, they started 
making what they call power drums, which was 24 by 16, 22 by 16. Right. And, and the toms were nine by 13. They would make it like a nine by uh, 14. Yeah, eight, uh, 12 by eight was a 12 by 10 or a 12 by nine. So they just extended stuff because of those bass drums I ordered, you know? Right. I mean, I was really an exper experiment for those guys because, you know, you had Mitchell, Mitch Mitchell and Ginger Baker. And um, before Bonzo, you had uh, me and Dino. And I was the only one that really was a wrecking machine. I would break everything. Right. Ludwig, you know, and they would say, well, I remember one time we had a gig with Jess Hotel opening Led Zeppelin Vanilla Fudge. And Ludwig came down to Chicago and said, oh, we got all these new stands and we fixed the, the pedal and blah, blah, blah. At the end of the night, we gave him back everything broken. <laughs> well, I mean, it was a good feeling. I, I'm not, I mean, I'm not a drummer, but, you know, I, I collect old stuff and I've, I've, I've seen I've seen those old Speed King pedals. Yeah. And, I, and I go, how with the, the little leather strap that that held the thing on? I go, well, the Speed King never had leather. They always had metal. I have no. one here. I have one here right. if you want to see it. Right. But, but it, it, it's a little metal thing. The, the Gretsch floating action, they mm. had the leather strap. Right. Those used to break. But then when I had that, I used to play. It's funny, before Vanilla Fudge and before the Loud Amps, I, I played traditional grip. And I would sit there and play and not, not even move a muscle. I would just be fast around the kit. Right. But that changed when I joined Vanilla Fudge. Because yeah. all the amps got bigger, and I started lifting my arms up and pounding drums. When we toured with Hendrix, there's an Fudge Hendrix uh, soft machine and uh, Air Apparent. It was a big right. tour at the end of September. No, September to the end of the year of '68. I got two dual Showman amps for myself. Right. Right. So I got a little short box, you know, the mixing box. Right. I'd sure mics all around the kit. I plug them in, and I run them into this tool showman amp, and I put them up in front of the stage. And they had four on each side, four eight um, voice of the theater cabinets. Right. <laughs> right. And it was so silly. It wasn't even a mixing board out front. The mixing board was on the side of the stage. It was a just a box. Right. So the mixing guy would run out during the sound check, and even during the show. And go, oh, come, run back and turn something up. Right. And run out and see what it sounds like. It was so silly. But I had that with the mixing you know, box I had near the drums. Right. And I remember Mitch Mitchell would say, Carm, you, would you let me uh, borrow your drum amps? Right. Like, well, sure. Because yeah. that was it. Well, I mean, you know, I would imagine from Vanilla Fudge to Cactus. I mean, yeah. Cactus was... You know, I mean, still to this day, one of the heaviest things I've ever heard in my life is Parchment Farm. Oh, right? yeah. I, when, I, when I heard that for the first time, I was like, what planet are these guys? <laughs> exactly. I was like, wow. I mean, but this it swings, but it's like, it, you just go. It's like a freight train. It's like a freight train. I played on my radio show all the time Yeah. Um, on Sirius. And I just right. go, I always just say, it's like, this is where, to me, my love of the blues and heavy music met for the very yeah. first time yeah. because it still could be bluesy. You still could swing, but it's heavy. And, it's heavy. and, and, and that was <clears> the <throat> thing that 
vanilla fudge and cactus and you know you know the stuff you did with jeff beck um yeah. it was always like there was always an element of this the music was heavy and had big impact but it wasn't it wasn't heavy metal you know what i mean it wasn't no, it wasn't i don't even know where heavy metal came from yeah as I mean, far as i'm concerned definitely. the first heavy metal band was blue cheer right right you know <laughs> but yeah exactly. uh, i didn't even know parchment farm was a blues song I wasn't really into the blues. Right. I was into R&B, but McCarty and Rusty Day were very blues. I mean, the lyric on Parchment Farm could have been anything. I thought it was yeah. original. Right. You know? And the reason why, what we tried to do with that song, uh, 10 years after I had a song called Coming Home. Yes. Mm -hmm. We wanted it to be faster than that. Right. And more, more aggressive than that. Yeah, you know that was that was the template that we went after and definitely surpassed it. Well, you know, you know that's that's the thing that that I always say to people. It's like if there's a real scene, like if there's a real scene in the blues, if there's a real scene in rock, if there's a real scene in anything, it it makes for better music because you're like, hey, ten years after it came out with this fast song, we want to we want to do yeah do one faster. You know, it's like you know. Uh, you, you know, do you think I'm sexy? Was a response to something the Rolling Stones was doing. Yeah, you know, yes. and 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 you're like, that's to me creates great. And that art. Kiss song, "I Was Made for Loving You," right. babe, was a response to "Sexy." Right there, you go. You know, you know, and Paul. I was hanging out with Paul uh, Paul uh, Stanley a lot at that in those days, and you know, and he said we got to write a song like that, and then they right. did that. You know. How did you get um, How did you get hooked up with Jeff Beck, for the? Well, the, the Jeff Beck thing it was was an ongoing thing, you know. Like he loved Shotgun. On the yeah, right. You came up and jammed with it with us. I did. Yeah. yeah, and he loved Shotgun, and uh, so when we played, we played the Singer Bowl with mm -hmm. Vanilla Fudge. Uh, we headlined. It was. Funny, this is a weird bill. Edwin Hawkins singers, Oh Happy Day. Right, yeah. And 10 years after. Uh -huh. And the Jeff Beck group and Vanilla Fudge. This singer ball in New York. And it was, you know, we had about eight, 9,000 people there. Right. So just before we went on, Led Zeppelin was there. And they went up and jammed with, with Jeff Beck group. Right. And my parents were there. And then John Bonham. I don't know if he played my drums or somebody else. I don't remember. I didn't know he stood up and took all his clothes off. <laughs> why? We never know. You know? But then, and my, my parents were there. My mother said, why did he take his clothes off? I said, Mom, I don't know. You know, they do a lot of drinking. But anyway, at the end of that show, John came up to me and said, this is Jeff Beck's number. He wants to play with you and Tim. Right. So he gave me the number. I showed it to Tim. Now, before this, Vanilla Fudge did a Coca-Cola commercial. And a guitar player, Vinnie Martell, got sick. Mm -hmm. Jeff Beck was in town. We had the same lawyer as a, it was like one big family. You had Jimi Hendrix, the Rascals, Herman's Hermits, Yardbirds, Jeff Beck group, Led Zeppelin, Vanilla Fudge. You know, this attorney handled everybody, mm -hmm. right? So we had this really big pain Coke commercial, you know, audio. And I don't know why, but I sang it. I don't know why Mark Stein didn't sing it. 
but it's on YouTube and, and I, I'm singing. I go, I don't know why Mark ain't singing that. But anyway, I guitar player got sick. So Steve Weiss, the attorney, called Jeff Beck and said, Vanilla Fudge needs you in the studio to do a Coke commercial. You, know, you good? He said, yeah. So he already heard Shotgun. So he was like into going. Right. He came down and Jeff played on it. Right. It was like the BBA with Mark Stein on keyboard. Right. Right. right? And uh, it was really fun. It was great. And when it came out so good, then me and Tim were like, wow, I'd like to play with Jeff Beck. You know, yeah. and he wanted to play with us. So, right. so when John Bonham gave me that number, you know, we waited for Jeff to get home mm-hmm. and we were still doing gigs with Fudge. And we talked to him. And he said, yeah, let's put it down together. So it's supposed to be, it was going to be Cactus. I already had the name. Right. I remember driving in uh, Arizona and there was a drive-in theater called the Cactus Drive-In. And big letters on top of the screen, it just said Cactus. Right. And I said, yeah. wow, that's a good name for a band. Right. You know, so we had that in the t- back of our head. So it was going to be me, Tim, Rod Stewart, and Jeff Beck. Wow. That would have been just amazing. But then Jeff, uh, Rod didn't want to work with Jeff because some financial BS, you know. And then we said, okay, we'll find another singer. So Peter Graham was the manager. He he was going to come over and meet with Steve Weiss, our attorney, and our manager Mm -hmm. with Jeff. About three days before Jeff came over, he got in a car wreck. Right. He put him 18 months behind. Mm-hmm. We broke Vanilla Fudge up already. Right. That's it. We're saying, so what do we do now? Right. You know? Got no Vanilla Fudge. and sit here, twiddle our thumbs. You know, we were you know, 24 years old. We were kicking ass, ready to go. So we said, let's just put Cactus together. So who else do we like? We love McCarty. Right. Detroit Wheels, Buddy Miles Express. Yep. You know? So he came to New York. We played with him. He loved it. Tried out a couple other guys out. They didn't work out. He loved it. And we need a singer. So he knew Rusty Day. They played with Ted Nugent. Right. Rusty was into it. But ever since we got Rusty, Atlantic Records never liked him. They always tried to get us to replace him. But he was an amazing front man. Right. You know, and a great songwriter. Right. You know? so, and a great singer. You know? And a great singer, you know, for blues, especially. Yeah. You know, so that's how that's how the Jeff Beck thing happened. But then it, it didn't happen. So we did Cactus for two years and then Jeff got better. Mm-hmm. <coughs> and he got Cozy Powell as a drummer. Right. Now, Cozy and John Bonham grew up together. And when, when Bonzo came on a Vanilla Fudge first tour, he went back home. You know, he hadn't made it yet. So he he was like Gaga over me and me. You know, this, this is right. in a book called The Thunder of Drums. I never... I never told the story until right. I read it in the book. Right. And and Cozy was like, oh, what was it like? And, you know, Bonzo was saying, well, it was great, you know, blah, 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 blah. So then he got to play with Jeff Beck, right, right. instead of me. So I said, oh, man, this guy's like my replacement, you know. Mm-hmm. So then uh, two years later, Jeff called us again and said, no, I want to play with you guys. So that's when we joined with him again. But later on, years later, in 76, I was asked to join Rainbow. And I couldn't oh, wow. do it because I was playing with Mike Bloomfield and KGB. Right. And in those days, once you sign to a label, you can't just jump ship. Right, 
Right. So I couldn't do it. So guess who they got? They got Cozy. Cozy Powell. That's right. So I, then I started busting Cozy's ball, balls going, hey, what are you, my professional replacement? You right. Know? Yeah. But we were friends by then, you know? Yeah. And yeah. then Cozy was in Blue Murder, and I really loved Blue Murder. I loved John Sykes. I loved uh, yeah. Tony. And I went to England looking to get in there when I knew Cozy was out. So when I jammed with them, I played Cozy's drums. Right. <laughs> it's like... This thing with me and Cozy kept crossing, you know? Yeah, I mean, it's just in so many different styles, too. Everything from, I mean, you know, Cozy was in White Snake and yeah. and Rainbow, but then he did all those Jeff Beck, you know. I yep. mean, I mean, you guys, I mean, obviously, you know, to me, the, the version of Superstition, yep. you know, that you guys did was just outrageous and, and, and really, really, you know, um, uh, it, it really showcased Tim's voice. And yeah, they, it did. Uh, Tim had a great voice. And, and we did that. Yeah. It's on YouTube. We did it. That's right. Yeah. Anamasa Boga de Peace at the NAMM show. I'll yeah. never forget that. And You were you just know, a baby. I was just a kid. <laughs> My God. But, you know, I mean, it was... Talk a little bit about Tim, the late great Tim Boger, because, uh, because you know... Well, uh, <laughs> excuse me. Such, such a star. Let me Let me... Tell you the story of, of superstition. Now, do you know this yeah. story? No. Okay. So Jeff Beck played on Stevie's um, talking book album. Mm -hmm. In return, Stevie was going to make uh, write a song. Yeah. And superstition was the song. So yeah. at the one that Steve, that Stevie put out was actually the demo that Stevie did. To show Jeff the song, right. So he showed Jeff the song, and Cozy was in the band at the time. So when we joined with Jeff, mm -hmm. we went to the new record. Jeff said, "Let's do that song that Stevie wrote for me." But then we changed it to what was on our record. We made it more of a guitar, drums, and bass record. Yeah. So, and then. While we were recording, we're almost done. Um, Motown heard Stevie's version. Said, "This is a hit record. We got to put this out." Right. So they put it out before our version came out. Right. I think the lyrics are a little different. Mm -hmm. Right. And so when our record came out, it was sort of like with Vanilla Fudge and "You Keep Me Hanging On." Yeah. Stevie Wonder's were number one. We came out with this killer rock version. And everybody thought that we did it, you know, off of that version, which we did, but we did it because he wrote that song for Jeff. Yeah, I heard I heard I heard that Superstition was written for Jeff and then it got it, it, it got released before and because it, yeah. it, to the general public it would appear like, oh, you guys were just covering Stevie Wonder. Exactly. Yeah, you we were weren't covering. Yeah, yeah, right. We, when we did it, we, it was an original song that was never released. Right. And Tim, Tim's voice is just so ridiculous. I mean, he sings so high. So high. All yeah. low, you know. And he loved the blues. Even like after, you know, after all the bands we were in together, he got really into into the blues. He was a teacher at MI, you know. Yeah. And he, he loved the blues, you know. He loved the blues. Did you... um? Um, you know, I mean, did you realize when, when you were coming up in New York, like how, 
special that scene was in the mid '60s, late '60s. I mean, it was Vanilla Fudge, The Rascals. Uh, you know, all, you know, everybody was there, and it was all, yeah. you know, and the English, the English would come to New York, and you know, like this, this, this pool of talent. Yeah, I mean, was, the way Vanilla Fudge got in, it was this Long Island scene, the Vagrants, Leslie West. Right. We're doing this new thing we call production numbers, which came from the Rascals. Right. So the Rascals covered a lot of songs, but uh, I guess, I don't know how the Vagrants came upon it, but they slowed everything down and made them production numbers. You right. Know? So when we when I joined Vanilla Fudge, we called the Pigeons, that's what we were doing. And that's right. why they wanted me. They wanted somebody who could sing and technically do different things. You know, like, you know, we did, Elmer Rigby was in 6'4" you know, mm -hmm. six, eight or six, four, I can't remember, you know, and different time signatures and, you know, and vocal, you know, four singers where Vag Vagrants only had, Leslie was the good singer in that band, yeah. Yeah. you know. So we made it because we had everything, you know, the vocals, right. we had the instrumentals and the arrangements. Uh, but that scene was special back then. I mean, the Vagrants used to draw 2,000 people to my manager's club. Right. And, and my manager was connected to the mob Mm -hmm. And like uh, Henry Hill from Goodfellas, that was guys that we hung out with. Wow. You know, it was a whole different, it was wild. It was like when that Goodfellas movie came out, I said, oh, my God, I can't believe this. You know, Henry used to come to our, to our house and he'd say, hey, Carmine, this, I got this stuff. It just fell off a truck. Right. You know, he'd open up this trunk of his car and his Revox, you know, remember Revox tap machines? Maybe you yeah. don't. But they were the very first on, sound on sound uh, yeah. tape machines. So I bought two of them from him. I said, what happens if it goes bad? He goes, I'll give you another one. You know? Right. <laughs> but it was amazing times. You know, everything was new. Right. Everything was new. Like today, everything's been done, you know? Right. Yeah, that's that's the thing. It's 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 hard, especially in rock and roll, to come and that's why, you know, when when the philosophical thinkers of the music business go, Why isn't there any new classic rock coming out? It's like because you have fifty plus years of this legacy yeah. and and nothing's new anymore you know the yeah. you know and, and it's all it we, we all got it from somewhere you know and and it's you just kind of changing as much as you can till it makes sense you know which is it makes me think of my my, my buddy i'm doing a um it's called a peace per domo project okay right. it's an instrumental album Right. And it's, it's not like jazz rock, kind of like rock jazz, instrumental, mm -hmm. you know, and I got a, a bunch of our friends who are doing a new record, a bunch of your friends, my friends, like Billy Sheehan, uh, Tony Franklin, Jimmy Haslett, Derek Sherinian, Bumblefoot, they're yeah. all on this record. But I found out the other day, my partner, Fernando Perdomo, you gave him a, uh, a grant. In, oh, did in, I? In 2020. Yeah, it was part of our Feeling Musicians. Yes. No, that's cool. Yeah, so I, I told him I was going to do this. Oh, make sure you mention it to him. Uh, so you got you got to play on a track with us, dude. I'm I'm you know me. I'm in. I'm in. I know. I know. You know, we did that. We started that literally uh, around May of 2020 when it was very apparent that a lot of musicians couldn't work. Know, weren't going to be working for the summer, which you yeah. know. For most people, that's that's when they make all their money for the year. You know, it's yeah, yeah. It's, it's like a, a farmer harvesting his crops. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And so we raised up to this. I mean, over seven hundred thousand dollars. We've given it all wow, away. No to, kidding. To, to people like you know your friend Fernando. And, yeah, 
And he's what a talent this kid is. He plays bass, guitar, keyboard. He's yeah. great at everything. And, you know? you know, the thing that I hated seeing, and I've seen some of it, but, you know, it's come back a little bit, but, you know, musicians that were kind of on the cusp of just being able to make a living doing it. And then yeah. they're like, they're like, I'm working for FedEx now. I'm working. Oh, I know. It's terrible. And, terrible. you know, it represents a lifelong dream. So when we were, get, we were giving away $1,500 checks, I was yeah. like, it's not going to be life changing, but it may keep you going for another month. Hey, God bless you, man. You know, you're doing all that good kind of stuff. I mean, you're you're a good dude. You are. I, I I I feel very fortunate in my life. We've been we've done well, and yes. the, every day I wake up and try to go. Oh, how do I pay it back a little bit? Yeah. You know? I, I do the same thing. I try and pay things back. You know, people say, "Can you sign this or do this or?" You know, I, I try not to be an idiot, you know. I try and really help people, you know. Right. I give uh, lessons. I, I have given lessons. I had a drum studio back in the day. Right. But, you know, I didn't charge a lot. $13 lessons, you know. Right, yeah. You know, just enough to pay the rent and stuff like that, you know. But uh, well, um, for me today, it's not about money, make, recording. I'm doing a King Cobra record we're finishing now. Right. I've been working on this for a year because of right. COVID and back and forth files. And I'm down to like five cents an hour, <laughs> you know, yeah. and, and the two, two guitar players I had, the original guys didn't want to do it. They said, what's the use of doing it? Nobody buys it. Nobody hears it. I said, you know what? It's about the legacy, man. Just and creating new music. Yeah. You know, I love creating new music. I mean, I got the studio here. Right. I'm engineering myself. I right. can do my own vocals, my own drums, you know. And, you know, um, I did the album with Fernando. I did one album. We're working on a second album. I produced this young lady. Uh, you know, I'm doing King Cobra. I just love music. Yeah. Like you, you know. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's it's like you can't stop, you know, and – and you know we're doing a we're doing a record next week with a a, a great artist uh, from Louisiana, and um, it depends on when this airs. We, we we may already be done with the record. Came out great. Came out great. Yeah. Um, yeah. And and we're doing a record for charity, and Good. he has a, he has a philanthropic uh, uh, foundation that he works with, and then we have our own, and we're we're doing a blues album for charity. And I've literally had to, you know, I as the producer, I had to be the one that calls up everybody and be like, hey, listen, this is what we're doing. This is going to be really fun. But remember the time I said we literally have, we, you know, we don't have any money. We, we we have no money for this. And you still got paid a little bit of money. Now I'm telling you, we literally have no money. No money. This is a don't, you know. And to everyone's cool. credit, they were going, I don't care. I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to sign up. I know, you didn't call me. Yeah. I, well, sorry. Next, the okay. next, one. next one. I got the studio here. It's very simple. Yeah, you know, I do that. Well, I do that too. Like the guys that played on this record, um, Bumblefoot, and you know, Bumblefoot played on something else of mine. I said, right. "Dude, I owe you. You know, anytime you need something, just call me." He right. said, "I ah, just buy me a steak someday." <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, you know, I my my session fee is two diet cokes. I just give me two diet yeah. cokes. Yeah. But, so I'm I'm good. Well, well, I'm gonna send you I'm gonna send you diet cokes then. All right, done. Um, one of the things I want to ask before we wrap up, and you know, a lot a lot of musicians kind of are plagued by this, is you know, 
it, it's the business side. It's it's the finances. You know, like they people are in big bands and and you know the the band itself earns a lot of money or you, you know write a big song or something like that. You know, you like what what advice do you, would you give musicians or you know anybody about the fiscal responsibility of of being a creative musician because it's because it's a big deal. I know a lot of people that yeah. you go, wow, you must be rolling. Not you know. Well, you know, today today it's very difficult as we talked about before. Yeah. You know, take the zeros off. I mean, right. I had a, I sold my rights to sexy back to Warner Brothers. Because right. there were no mechanicals. Mechanicals when people buy a record. Yeah. There were, there were no mechanicals anymore. Right. And that was a huge record. Right. You know? But I kept ASCAP. So I would, you know, I've been watching my money since I moved to California in 1975. Right. Because when I moved there and all the three bands I was in, I walked out and I, I said, this all the money I have? Right. You know, by 25% to the. To, uh, manage your five percent to this guy, ten percent to the agent, then pay your bills, pay it by the time the band ends up some. Yeah. You know, you got ten dollars to split. Right. You know? Right. So yeah. I mean, today it's hard to even make any money. The only way you can make money is, you know, is to if you have a band, play gigs, build a following, but keep right. your eye on expenses. And now it's really hard, as you know, with mm-hmm. these gas prices and everything, you know. Right. I mean, we just budget all the cactus thing we're doing, but mm-hmm. now the gas prices have like doubled since we did the budget. Right. You know? Yeah. So who knows what we're going to end up with? You know, and, and it's it's very difficult today. But I, all I can say is, keep your eye on the money. I've I've done other things in my life. I wrote the drum book that did well. Right. You know, just stuff that came out and that I did. You know, uh, I dabble in real estate. You know, but knock on wood. I had accountants and people watch over me that, you know, I had a corporation. So I'm, I set myself up, you know, but a lot of guys don't. Yeah. I mean, even guys and bands that I played with, you know, and I've been lucky. I play with all these different bands that made money, but you know, today it's very difficult to play (laughs) unless you're in a huge band like Foo Fighters or or yourself, you know, that go out on the road and make all the money because the record business is really there is no record business anymore. I was thinking about that yesterday. I said, how do these record companies make any money? Spotify yeah. pays nothing. Right. You know, maybe if you get some people on iTunes downloads, I mean that still makes a little money. Yeah. You know, there's no C D sales anymore. You know, maybe no. some, maybe some album sales, you know. So how does a record company make any money? That's well, why they're not giving out any money. Well, you know, the thing is, if what what you're seeing now is people buying catalogs for like, yeah. you know, like you'll see Springsteen sell. He sold his cat half a million dollars or half a billion dollars. Yeah. <laughs> half a million. Um, you know, and <laughs> that's ridiculous. when you think about it. Right? I mean, that should get you through. Um, yeah. And uh, what the only thing that I can figure out is with that catalog ownership being important. But they're they're banking on Spotify and the streaming services as a long term business model. Meaning, if you have like our our record company, I think we have fifty something titles that every day yeah. stream a little bit, and it's and it's 
it just it just yeah. ticks up and you go yeah it's i know but 50 you know half a billion dollars i mean yeah well what they're doing is is these big companies are putting their money into these catalogs and every at a certain point the spotify money will catch up to what they spend on it and then as soon as they they break even i, I they think they're get- also i think they're also uh, <coughs> i don't know if they sell their their uh, ascap with it right you know? Because I mean, when I did, I did my sexy and young Turks back to the company because, you know, it's there's no money being made there. But I kept ASCAP, right? And ASCAP actually still makes money, right? You know, yeah. as you know, you know. But uh, the yeah, but what I did, I mean, I took my money and I bought some real estate with it, right? And that real estate's generating more income mm-hmm. than. The actual song was in, in mechanicals, right? You know? Yeah, and you gotta, you know, use your head and stuff. There's a lot of a lot of guys and in in musicians don't have a clue about finance and how it works and money. And you know, I was lucky that manager I had, the mafia guy, he always told me, buy real estate. People gotta live somewhere. Right. Buy real estate. He owned so many real estate properties in New York. I don't know. You remember in New York, you got those big brown buildings that have like 50 units in there. Right, right. I don't know how many of those he owned, you know, Wow. but you know, you need somebody to mentor you in this when you're a right. musician, because if you don't, you don't have a clue. Somebody should start, you should start a, a, a school of finance for musicians. Well, you know, I mean, I've- I'll help you. You know? I, you know, like Alex Rodriguez, the former uh, New York Yankee baseball player. Yeah. He actually he has a he started a company that that helps sports guys after they retire because you know oh. the, the, like you know like you know let's say you play baseball for ten years right you're making mm-hmm. yeah. real good money for ten years and then then you retire you get injured and then it just stops. Yeah. You know, and they don't know how to do that. You know, right. and, and they don't know how to manage it going forward. It's 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 a it's a it's a big thing, you know, how they, how it, it works. It is. It you know? is. I mean, you know, big acts like, you know, uh, Zeppelin guys and, you know, guys that are worth 200, 300, 400 million dollars. Yeah. You know, I mean, they, it doesn't matter. <laughs> right. No, they're good. Yeah. It doesn't matter. But, you know, the, the guy that, you know, like that's, that could be worth a million bucks or 500 grand, you know, but, you know, and you're, and you're getting ready to retire, you know, I mean, I've been lucky, you know, my people set me up with uh, pension plans and IRAs and, right. and and all that stuff and and you know the real estate and the royalties and you know and the PPL you know you know right. that's a new thing PPL yeah I didn't know what PPL was until a few years ago and they called me and said Carmine Pichia we got some money for you I said you do for what they right. said for you're in my heart with Rod Stewart I go really and they had thousands of dollars for me I said wow. So what do you got to do? I said, just sign with PPL. I said, okay. So I signed with PPL. And then you got sound exchange and you got the SAG after thing. There's all kinds of things that a lot of musicians don't even have a clue about, you know? I I still get $4,000 a year randomly deposited into my credit union account that I had when I was a kid. I've had it since I've been eight years old. It's ever since my, I started the credit union account in upstate New York after my first communion, oh, maybe no. put, put the money in the bank, right? And so what is a credit union account? I don't even know what that is. It's, it's just a small regional bank. You know, they're just a small. Oh, so it's just a, just a savings account. It's just a small savings account. 
And randomly, I from Ireland get somehow deposited four thousand dollars directly into this account once a, once a year, and I'm like, I don't, I don't even know where it's coming from. I don't know wow. where, why they're. It must be from some sort of radio play or something. But I don't want to like change the information because I'm afraid that if I do, it won't yeah. come anymore. It's exactly. like it's it, it's working. You know what I mean? Like yeah. Just, yeah, I mean, that this PPL thing was just very much of a surprise for me. And now yeah. it's it's actually taken the place of royalties for songs, yeah. you know, yeah. somewhat. I mean, not as much. I mean, there were times where the other thing I'm sexy was, you know, in a quarter, it was hundreds, hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah, you're you right. Know, yeah. Back in the day, you know, just for the whole th- song, not just my share. But, right. you know, that don't happen no more. I mean, I look at on the on the wall a double platinum single it's two million singles right who has two million singles anymore you know i mean is there an award these days for like you know 130 streams of spotify yeah i mean it's like you'll see it with pop acts when it's 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 the most downloaded song of all time like i wouldn't brag about that yeah (laughs) i know i mean it's even when you get the hundred, I mean, we almost had uh, Vanilla Fudge. Uh, I think it was Kanye West did "Take Me for a Little While," uh-huh. which was our arrangement. Right. We didn't write it, but it was our arrangement. So when you arrange something like that, you get a piece of that. We were going to get forty percent right. of the song, and then we find out it wasn't our version. It was some uh, black company a uh, black group from 1970 that copied our arrangement right that was never actually a hit or anything right. but it was their version right yeah but we were figuring it out with atlantic if you sell 140 million dollars uh, 140 million streams we would make about fifty thousand dollars right which would be okay forty percent but yeah. that's 130 million streams Three. think right. about that number yeah, it's it's insane. 130 million. Yeah, you know, I, I remember Leslie West telling me because I think uh, Jay Z and Rick Rubin sampled. Um, a, a, I want to Mississippi say, Queen. Mississippi mm-hmm. Queen. Yeah, like the riff, like the it riff. was some guitar. Da, 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 da. Yeah. yeah, for for a big. I think the song was called "99 Nine Problems." It was a huge song, and and I remember Leslie saying, "He's like, boy, was that a." He goes, I didn't expect that. He goes, you go, hey, I, hey, but, hey, I didn't expect that, right? Like that in that voice. Not bad, not bad. I, I played with Leslie for three months when Corky was out on uh, a drug rehab, and we opened up for Kiss. Oh, wow. And when the very first tour, that's when I got to meet uh, Paul Stanley and Gene and Peter and Ace. Right. And, and they were all from, you know, New York. And so we hit it off really good, all of us, you know? Yeah. And, and, uh, Leslie was like, you know, Leslie is the longest person I knew in the business. Wow. When I was playing in a in an R&B group with horns and I had my hair teased up right. and wore pinstripe suits, he had the vagrants when first starting, and they looked like the Rolling Stones. Yeah. And we were playing in a club in Manhattan. And, you know, in those days, you used to do two bands, you know. So this particular night, it was, it was my band and Leslie's band, the vagrants. And when they came in, I said, these guys look like dirty slobs. Yeah, right. <laughs> you, know? Yeah. you know, on the same token, in the same year, approximately. So I knew him 
the longest of anyone that I got to really be friends with, except Jimi Hendrix. Wow. You know, Jimi Hendrix was a little later. Right. Leslie was before. We used to play with the same kind of band, and he was the Jim, Jimmy James and the Blue Flames. Right. Played this club on 77th and Broadway called the, the Lighthouse. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, we do 30 minutes. He would do 30 minutes. And at midnight, they would play like an hour of, of uh, records or 30 minutes of record. So right. we would go up to the prostitutes' apartments in the area, smoke <laughs> pot, and Jimmy would talk about making it. I didn't even care about making it. I just want to play, make a living. Right. But, you know, then we go back and play. So I knew him from those days. Wow. You know, and uh, then when he made it, and I saw a picture of this guy playing, Jimi Hendrix playing with his mouth, with his mm -hmm. teeth. I said, whoa, that looks like Jimmy James. Right. You know? And then we, we met later on when Vanilla Fudge right. was uh, in, in England. He was in the speakeasy. I, I went up to him and said, hey, it's Carmine. Remember we played the Lighthouse? And blah, blah, blah. He said, yeah, I remember that. Your band, that was a good band. Blah, blah, blah. He goes, what are you doing here? I said, well, I played with Vanilla Fudge. And he goes, I love the fudge. Right. <laughs> I said, great. And then we, we, you know, we hit it off and, you know, we knew him for the rest of his, his life, you know, which wow. wasn't very long after that. I was, I'm, uh, he died so young. He did so much in four years. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, in those days, you used to do two albums a year. Right. You know, you, you, there was that was the deal. Two mm -hmm. albums a year. So in three years, you did six albums. Now, six albums is like 10 years, you know. Yeah. If you, if, if you can get to six albums. Yeah. Carmine, thanks for doing this, man. I really appreciate it. That was it. fun, man. Thanks. I'll be in touch, man. I'll talk to you about uh, playing with us, man. And you, again, you need me for anything. I got the studio. It's very easy to do. I, I appreciate it. And uh, yeah, send me, send me that, send me a track. I'll, I'll, I'll play on it. No, no okay, problem. cool. You do. Uh, Great, ladies man. and gentlemen, uh, ladies and gentlemen of Nerdville, Carmine of Peace, the legend. Thank you, man.